The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you are here with us this morning or you've joined us online. If you have a Bible, I want you to grab it and turn to page one. We are going to start in Genesis chapter one this morning. So uh, Genesis chapter one. But before we turn our attention to the scripture, we got a little family business to do. Uh, Back in November, uh, we came to you with the kind of year in financial update as we looked at where we were coming to the last few weeks of the year. Uh, looking back at our financial obligations from 2021, looking ahead to the things that we were dreaming about doing as we move forward into the future, we came to you and said, we were asking God to provide for this church $1.75 million to meet all of our financial obligations, to position us to move into the new year. And I'm just excited this morning to let you know he did it. <laughs> and you did it. We did it. million, but the good news gets even better. We've seen something that really, frankly for me, was shocking, and yet shocking in an incredibly beautiful way. That we find ourselves here at the end of 2021, moving into 2022, the giving from last year was nearly $1 million over what we received the year before. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. And, and, and the thing is, is that that isn't just about looking back and celebrating where we ended 2021, but it is about looking ahead to what that makes possible as we move forward into 2022. Did we have big dreams about the things that we as a church, the things that you will be a part of, the, the difference that you are making in the world, that, that your giving, your faithfulness is going to have an impact around the world through our ministry partners in places like the Philippines and, and, and Liberia and, and Russia and India. But not only that, your, your faithfulness, your generosity will have an impact. Seeing lives changed here in our city with, uh, with homelessness, with people who are, who are under-resourced, who are struggling, who are having a hard time just paying the rent or keeping their electricity on. Your faithfulness will have an impact on, on the lives of children and, and students who are in other parts of our building right now, hearing about what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And then over the course of the next coming weeks, you're going to be hearing more and more and more as we move forward through the year about what your faithfulness is doing to make an impact, both within our church and around the world. And let's be honest, that a lot of us, even sitting here in this room this morning, we kind of look around and we go, yes, we don't look exactly like we did before the pandemic began. And we struggled with how do we build momentum? And just when you think we're going to begin building some momentum back again, here comes the next variant. And yet this is just a reminder to us all that God is alive and well and providing for and active in and working through the people of Irving Bible Church to make a difference in our community and around the world. And I think that's worth us celebrating. Yes. So with that in mind, will you just... Join me in prayer as we say thanks to God for his provision for us. Father, you are the God who does exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. And Lord, I just thank you for the way in which you have been so faithful to provide for us here at IBC. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people, for their generosity, for their giving back to you as an act of worship, for their participation in the life of this family and the mission that you've given to us. And God, I pray that indeed that, that, that you would 
help us to be good stewards of the resources you've entrusted to us. And that we would be able to celebrate the, the, the fruit of this faithfulness as we see lives change both around the world, in our city, and right here in our building. And Lord, we turn now our attention to your word. And we recognize, Lord, that, that, that you want to do some work in our lives here and now. And so Lord, I pray that you would speak. I pray that we would have ears to hear what it is that you have to say to each one of us this morning from your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so with grateful hearts, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 They say confession is good for the soul, so I think it's good for us to begin this morning, not with just me confessing, but, but for us corporately. There's a, there's a confession that I think that, that, that we can make together if we're being really truthful, really honest to say, we have a problem with the Bible. Can we, can we sort of admit that out loud? Um, Stephen Prothero is a... a a professor at Boston University, right? He uh, teaches about religion in America. And, and I think he captures something of the essence of our problem pretty well. He says this, he says, the disparity between Americans' veneration of the Bible and their understanding of it paints a picture of a nation that believes God has spoken in scripture and can't be bothered to listen to what God has to say. Now, I, I don't know about you, I, I feel my toes a little bit stepped on. Because I have to be honest, that sometimes that problem is even true of me. I think this problem works its way out in our lives, in this community, and in a few different ways, in three primary ways. And I realize there may be some of you who every day, you're, 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 you're diving in to the word of God. You are living your life according to the teaching of the scripture. You spend time in the Bible every day, and if that's you, that's amazing, but you should recognize, I think you're in the relatively tiny minority. There, there may be a lot of us here, like myself, who, who believe the Bible, who trust the Bible, who want to live my life by the Bible, but if I'm being really honest, I don't always read the Bible. Many of us who, who say we believe it, who say we trust it, want to live by it, have never read it through. It's part of why we're reading through the New Testament over the course of this year together. If you haven't started with this yet, you're only five chapters behind. You can knock those out in 30 minutes this afternoon and be on track with us. A chapter a day, every weekday over the course of this year, we'll read the New Testament together. But, but a lot of us, we trust the Bible, we believe the Bible, we just don't read it. Then there may be some of you who this, the way this works out for you is, is you may be walking away from the Bible right, or have walked away from the Bible. And yet, maybe it's true for you that you're considering walking away from a book you haven't read. That maybe you're walking away because of a particular caricature of God that's been portrayed to you by taking little bits and pieces from here and there and putting them together in a way that depicts the God of the Bible as not something or someone that you want to have anything to do with. And yet, you don't actually have the, the context of the whole story. Maybe some of you that, that are in a third category, that, that you're here this morning and, and you've really never believed the Bible, never really followed the Bible. This is not your background. And, and you sort of wonder about the rest of us. 
Like, why would you try to believe in and live by an ancient book? It'd be like trying to live by the Epic of Gilgamesh or the, the ancient stories of the Greek gods. If any of those describe you this morning, I'm glad you're here. Because this morning begins a journey that we're going to be on together as a church for the remainder of this year. It's a journey of going deep. That we believe God's calling us as a church to go deeper into the story of the Bible. To, to, to go deeper into our discipleship to Jesus by going deeper into the scriptures. Because we are, first and foremost, followers of Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi and he was passionate about. He, he had large portions memorized of. He was a teacher of the Bible. So this year we want to go deeper in the Bible in order to go deeper in our discipleship to Jesus. This isn't just a year about knowing and encountering the Bible, perhaps like never before, but, but about knowing and encountering God, perhaps like never before. And so we're launching a sermon series this morning called The Story of God, where over the course of the next eight weeks, throughout January and February, we'll be telling the story of the Bible from start to finish. And then over the course of the remainder of this year, we'll be doing a further series that unfold that story, focusing on the different movements of the story as we go through the year with the hope and intention that we go deep, that we, that we know and encounter the Bible like we never have before, that we know and encounter God like we never have before. And so this morning, it's the story of the Bible. We begin with the story. And somewhere around ninth grade, you were introduced to an image that looks something like this. Right? Does this seem familiar to anybody? This is a story arc or a plot line. That every great story sort of follows this basic design. That it begins with an exposition or an introduction that establishes the setting and the main characters of the story. That there is somewhere along the way an inciting incident, a conflict that's introduced to the story. That gives the rest of the story its kind of dramatic tension. That from there you have what's called the rising action. This is the unfolding of the consequences of the conflict, ultimately leading to a climax where that conflict is definitively addressed. From there, then you have the falling action. That is now the unfolding of the consequences of the climax until ultimately reaching the denouement, the the resolution of the story. And they all lived happily ever after. And the Bible fits this plot line precisely. The Bible begins with this first movement of creation, the, the introduction that establishes the character, the characters and the setting for the story. The Bible has an inciting incident, the fall, where sin is introduced to the story. The conflict comes in. And then we have the rising action, which is actually the majority of your Bible, the story of Israel, the unfolding of God's response to the conflict in the story, ultimately leading to the climax, which comes to us in the person and work of Jesus. Then leading to the falling action, that is the unfolding of the consequences of the climax, that is the work of the church in the world. And then finally, leading ultimately to the denouement, the the new creation, the renewal of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. And so over the course of the next eight weeks, we'll be following that plot line from beginning to end. But this morning, we begin with the introduction. We begin with creation. We begin in the beginning. And you likely know that's precisely how the Bible begins. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, let's pause right there. Before we actually dive into this text and begin to kind of explore what's happening here, and we need to step back a little bit and just acknowledge something. And this may seem obvious, and yet it's really important that we have it in place as we come to this story. And that is simply the recognition, the acknowledgement that this is an ancient story written by an ancient author to an ancient audience. It's an ancient story written by an ancient author to an ancient audience. Now, as Christians, we believe it's more than that. It's the very word of God, and yet it's not less than that. That this reflects the, the, the culture, the background, the understanding of the ancient author in his ancient context for his ancient audience. And the reason that's so important for us to acknowledge is because we have to recognize that sometimes we come to page one as 21st century Bible readers with our own preoccupation with our own questions and agenda. And when we come to this story with our questions and our agenda, we may completely miss the questions and the agenda, the preoccupation of the ancient author and his ancient audience. And we will then have really completely missed the point. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project has a wonderful analogy for this. He says, suppose your, uh, your sister comes to you and asks you to, to perform magic tricks at your niece's birthday party. And so your task now is to figure out, okay, how, how, how am I going to do some, some magic tricks at the birthday party for a bunch of nine-year-olds? And so you think, where can I find out about magic? How can I, how can I learn how to do some tricks? I know, Harry Potter, right? Because, I mean, these stories, they're great stories. And, and what do they talk about all over the place? It's, it's magic. It's, it's wizards and wands and spells and all kinds. So I'll go to Harry Potter and I'll find out about magic. And you may spend the weeks leading up to the birthday party just, just doing a deep dive into the Harry Potter series. But when you show up for that birthday party, what's going to happen? You're going to be a complete bust, right? Because nothing in Harry Potter is going to teach you how to do card tricks. But, but the reason that you're going to be a bust at the birthday party is you came with questions and agenda that were different than the questions and the agenda of the author. Does Harry Potter have a lot to say about magic? Absolutely. But you came to the story with your agenda rather than coming to the story with the agenda of the author. As 21st century readers, we tend to come to the stories of creation with an agenda that's primarily about when and how. And those are not the preoccupations of the ancient author and his ancient audience. The agenda of the ancient author and his ancient audience was who and why. And if we come with questions of of, of when and how to a story that's all about who and why, we're going to look just about as silly as if we're doing Wimgardian Leviosa at the birthday party. But if we actually come and say, what does this story have to say about who and why? Suddenly it opens up to us new meanings that are profoundly relevant for the 21st century world. You tracking with me? Yeah, so, so let's look at it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right here in this opening line, we, we're told who the story is principally about. 
that we're told first and foremost, this is the story of God. To be sure, as we will find out as the story continues to unfold, to be sure, it is the story of us as well. But it's not first and foremost about us. It's first and foremost about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this little phrase, heavens and earth, it's a, it's a figure of speech, a Hebrew figure of speech referred to as a merism. A merism is a way of saying a this and a that. And a this and a that means and everything in between. And so to say that God created the heavens and the earth is to say he created this and that and everything in between. God is the one who created everything that exists. That it is ultimately his handiwork. The preoccupation of the story is who, that is God, created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, what's with that image of the waters and the Spirit hovering and all that? Well, here's the thing. Israel's ancient story is written against the backdrop of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors. There are all these other countries, these nations around Israel, and they all had their own creation stories. And some of those stories had gotten into the minds, the hearts, the imagination of God's people. And, and God gives us this story to say, no, 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 no. Here's the, the true story. Here's my story. And, and in those other ancient creation stories, oftentimes the material world emerges out of the chaos waters out of the deep darkness of the chaos waters. And oftentimes in those stories, that material creation is is created by the gods through violence and conflict. There's one ancient story where a male god, Marduk, gets in a battle with a female goddess of the sea, of the waters, Tiamat. And Marduk kills Tiamat, fillets her body, and then creates the material world as we know it out of the, the parts of the body of this female goddess. Now, what kind of culture do you think that kind of story gives rise to? A culture characterized by violence and conflict. A, story, a culture characterized by male domination of women. And this is Israel's story. No, 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 no. No violence. No conflict. No multiple gods at war with each other. The spirit of God. Just hovering over the waters. This God doesn't create the world by violence and conflict. This God speaks and the world comes into existence. And this little phrase, formless and empty, in the Hebrew it's tohu vavohu. It can be translated as chaotic and uninhabitable. This, the, the God fashions the world out of this primordial sense of chaos. It is chaotic and uninhabitable. Tohu vavohu, formless and empty. And what's really fascinating is that when we get this account of the six days of creation, what you find is that the first three days are all about ordering the chaos, creating form. And then the second three days are all about filling that form, about filling that which is empty. What God forms on day one, he fills on day four. What he forms on day two, he fills on day three. What he forms on, I'm sorry, on day five. What he uh, forms on day three, he fills on day six. Uh, to, to illustrate this, I was thinking about um, 
my kitchen table at our house. Um, uh, my son, my oldest son, who's uh, away at college, is home right now. We got a couple extra bonus weeks because they're online the first two weeks of the semester. And one of the things that we've discovered through COVID is that while we have kids that are pretty far apart in age, from 19 down to 12, that, that one thing that they actually enjoy doing together is Legos. And so right now, if you were to go to my house and see my kitchen table, it is absolutely covered in Legos. I thought about taking a picture, putting it on the screen, and realized I would get in trouble for that, right? I thought better about it. It's chaos. It's, it's, it's formless and empty, chaotic and uninhabitable, tohu vavohu. And if I was to invite you over for dinner, what I would have to do first is create order from the chaos. And then I would have to take the, the things out of the, the, the cub, cabinets, the cupboards, and put them all in their right place. The plates, the silverware, the napkins, all of that, right? To bring form and fullness to that which is formless and empty. And this is what you see in these six days of creation. God forms and he fills And what I love as you see this story unfold is that there's this rhythm that pulses through it. God said, God said, God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And there was, and there was. And then every act of creation, God steps back and looks at it and says, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. And he comes to the very end, Genesis 1 verse 31. And God looks at these six days of uh, of his handiwork and, and God saw all that he has made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. When God looks at the world, the first thing that he says is, ah, this is good. When we look at the world, the first thing that we should say is, this is good. I had a student a number of years ago who had this massive Twitter following. I mean, he just, he's got like thousands upon thousands of Twitter followers. It's like, how'd you get all those Twitter followers? So the one day he, he gets into this sort of tweet storm. He's just sending out one tweet after another, after another, after another, all of which make the same basic point. And the point that he was making is if your pastor isn't telling you what a slug you are, what a worm you are, what a, what a rotten, miserable, depraved sinner you are, you need to find a different church. Now, he was getting at something important in the story that we will get to. The human fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. But I, but I sent him just a, a quick reply in a very professorial sort of way. But I, I said, make sure that your theological anthropology, that is your theology of what it means to be human, make sure your theological anthropology begins in Genesis 1 and not in Genesis 3. Because the first thing that God says when he looks at his creation, the first thing that God says when he looks at you and me is it is good. It is very good. I went to a funeral uh, this past week for my, uh, my great aunt, Mary Martha. At the funeral, I learned that uh, she was named Mary Martha because her parents had actually gone to Sunday school the morning that she was born. It was a Sunday. They went to Sunday school, and they went to the hospital, and she's born. And, and the lesson that morning in Sunday school was about Mary and Martha, so she became Mary Martha. And later in her life, she, she would say to other people, it's a good thing the lesson that morning wasn't on Jezebel, Right? <laughs> But, uh, but I went to the funeral this week, and, and as 
sometimes happens when you're at a funeral. You, you just, you're sort of confronted with the reality of your own mortality. Maybe you start even thinking like I did about your own funeral one day. And there's an old hymn that I've told Jason Elwell that, that I want him to sing at my funeral. And the old hymn says, the old hymn is, this is my father's world. And it's this beautiful old hymn that's all about encountering the beauty of God, the glory of God, the presence of God in his creation. In the rustling grass, I hear the birds raising their carols. But there's one line in that hymn that if you don't hear anything else from this sermon this morning, if you'll hear just this and you'll apply it to your life, it will change your life. One little phrase in that hymn that says, he shines in all that's fair. He shines in all that's fair. He, that is God, is the beauty behind everything beautiful. The good behind all goodness. The joy behind everything joyful. The delight in everything that is delightful. He shines in all that's fair. Not long ago, Kim and I were invited to a dinner party with some IBCers, and we talk a lot about being a multi-ethnic church. This was a sort of multi-ethnic dinner party, and, and so we all brought foods from you know, kind of different cultures, but the, the hostess made for us uh, this goat curry that was just incredible. And uh, I, just, I took the, the first bite of that dish, and I thought to myself, he shines in all that's fair. <laughs> Right? Because if you will go through the world and see in, in every great meal, in every beautiful sunset, in every uh, leaf turning its colors in the fall, that as we look around and experience the, the things that are, that are beautiful, that are fair in this world, and see that he shines in all of them, and then we give thanks to him, it will change you. God looks at this world, he's made, he says, it's good, it's very good. But notice, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, it's perfect. It's, 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 it's perfect. He says it's good. The Hebrew word is tov. This good world that God has made is very good, but it's not perfect. It, it is still, there's some chaos in the world. Um, there is some potential that God has put in his good world. And so how is it, after his six days of creating, how is it that God wants to bring order to the chaos and harness the potential of his good world? And that is through human beings, his image bearers. Look with me in verse 26 of this first chapter of Genesis. At the, at the pinnacle of God's creative work, on the sixth day, verse 26, a passage that we look at quite a bit around here. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When we look at this little uh, passage about the creation of humanity, and it's one, as I said, we come back to time and time and time again at IBC because, as I've said to you before, this is the very foundation of Christian ethics, the way that we make our way in the world, the way in which we see and treat other people is founded upon this passage that every human being is made in the image of God. That what we find in this passage about humanity is both, both dignity and purpose. 
Dignity and purpose. Dignity, because every human being, every human being, the, the, the person that you struggle to love the most, the kind of people that you struggle to love the most, made in the image of God. Every human being, every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, every race, that it doesn't matter your, your skin color, your nation of origin, your tax bracket, your political party made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair or you're in a nursing home or you're in a middle school classroom or you're in a mansion in the suburbs or you're in a prison made in the image of God. Every human being. And notice he says male and female, he created them. Right? Male and, this, this in the ancient world was profoundly countercultural. That this story comes in, is born into a world that is all about male domination of women. Think it's a little countercultural even still today? Is it possible that, that millennia later we have failed to live up to the ideals of this ancient story? Every human being made in the image of God and were that he be treated as such. Dignity, but, but also purpose. And it's, it's addressed in verse 26 and 27, but it's made even more explicit in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. You'll figure that out. Uh, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Three key words in this verse that speak to human purpose. Rule Fill and subdue. God's good world still has some chaos in it. And it's filled with all kinds of potential. So he makes human beings to partner with him. To make this world a better place. To partner with him to bring order to the chaos. To partner with him to, to, um, for us to be the best characters we can be in the greatest story ever told. For us to harness the potential of God's good creation to make this world a better place. Now, there is a very real sense in which this purpose that we have been created for plays out over human history, though marred by sin. Right? There is a very real sense in which the world we have is the world that we've made. And the world is the way that it is because we are the way that we are. But this story invites us to live a different way. To live according to God's intention. To partner with him in ordering creation and in seeing the world that he has made to flourish. The invitation for us is to partner with him and to trust him. To submit our lives to him, to, to his guides, to his wisdom, to his way for us. If you flip the page from page one to page two, you find that we're in a garden. A garden with a man named Adam, which means human, and his wife named Eve, whose name means life. A man named human with his wife named life. In a garden of Eden, which means delight. A man named human and his wife named life in a garden called the light. And there's a tree. There are actually two trees. The tree of life from which they are free to eat and have God's life within them. Eternal life available to them. 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sometimes we read that story and we go, well, what's up with that? A man named Hubert, his wife named Life in a garden called the light with a magic tree. What's with the, this tree? Why would God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right there in the center of the garden? Here's the thing we have to recognize. The temptation that they faced there in that garden, that, the, the, the nature of that story, the nature of that tree represents the nature of temptation that every single one of us have faced ever since. Because this one prohibition was God's way of saying, trust me, trust my way. Will you trust me to be God or will you seek to be God yourself? Will you go your own way? Will you trust your own instincts? Will you define good and evil, right and wrong for yourself? Will you trust me? And if you've been around this story much at all, you, you know where the story's going. You know the inciting incident that we'll talk about next week. But, but when we find ourselves here in the beginning of the story, the invitation to us all is to partner with God and to trust in him. Now, I think that if we're honest at self-evaluation, which we aren't always, but if we're honest with self-evaluation, some of us, our lives feel a little bit like that chaotic creation. That our lives can feel a little bit tohu vavohu, chaos, chaotic and uninhabitable. And I just want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you find yourself living a life that is filled with chaos, the good news for you is that God has been in the business of bringing order to chaos for a long, long time. And that he wants to bring order to your chaos if you will trust in him. The invitation to all of us is to submit our lives to this creator God, who that is God who made the heavens and the earth. Why? So that he might dwell with his image bearers and we might worship and serve him by partnering with God in the flourishing of his creation, living our lives in trust to him, submitting ourselves to him. The invitation to each and every one of us is to submit ourselves to him again today. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.